Okay. And then it doesn't flash. Oh, okay. You can pause it by pausing, just unpause it like that. This is Margarita. He has come from Marin County. Wow. And um, actually, we're going to say a few things too, but I've known Margarita for over 20 years, and he's our early pioneering part of the community in the Bay Area. And recently, met her again at Spirit Rock, and we are so incredibly lucky to have Margarita here, a person of deep integrity, wisdom, kindness, just a physician, uh, deep Dharma practitioner, deeply dedicated for diversity, and we are just incredibly lucky to have you. And I just really thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Bob. Thank you. Real heart, <laughs> heart connection that goes a long way. So. Yeah, and I'm very honored to be asked to come and work with you in this way. Um, the state of our world um, is quite dire at the moment, and how we are relating to each other and how we're relating to the earth is, is really um, the area where um, I feel the most important focus needs to be um, aimed in that way. Um, <coughs> and given that we have the, the Buddhist practice, we're particularly uh, blessed to have a way into the current situation. And so I can't think of anything that I would rather put my efforts towards than to understand uh, the Dharma in the broader context of how we are living it in the world, and, and the integration of the state of the world with our inner practice. And so I feel very fortunate that you have invited me and that I get to spend this time with you. Um, to begin with, I, I always uh, take the refuges, including um, the great mother of Prashantaranita, so I'll just start with that. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Supreme Mother, the perfection of sublime knowing. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Supreme Mother, the perfectionist one and I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Supreme Mother, the perfection of sublime knowledge. So, um, just a little bit of an introduction. Um, one of the uh, most profound, uh, let's say, uh, grounds of our Buddhist practice is the recognition that there is such a thing as true nature. That there is something beyond this personality that we're all so identified with. And um, we realize that our conditioned life is all happening within a cultural context. So when we um, begin to look at the issue around diversity, the most important factor 
is to understand thoroughly how we are situated within the broad cultural context in which we live. So where do we find ourselves in that broad context? And so, um, because that that situation that we're in, where we're born, what class, what family, all of that, lends a certain lens through which we perceive, we relate through that lens, and we basically experience the world through that lens and through a whole narrative that comes with our particular situation that we're born into within the cultural context that we're living. So, um, to be, as we begin this work, understanding how we are situated is, is paramount. So, um, I would like to have you know, some silence, um, and what I would like to do, perhaps, is do about 10 minutes just sitting like we're used to sitting, and then we'll go for another 10 or 15 minutes with an exploration of movement that I'll tell you more about once we get there. And maybe we could just start with, uh, with some silence, and I'll just ring the bell to begin with. <coughs> It's all happening within a cultural context. Even all the teachings we get are all happening within a cultural context. And so when we begin to look at the whole area of diversity, um, understanding deeply how we are situated within the cultural context is key. Because how we are situated provides a lens through which we are experiencing the world with everything, all the narratives that are involved with that. So I just wanted to mention that in case some of you have missed it. So, and along those lines, the fact that recognizing that we are conditioned, you know, most of our waking time is spent identified with the conditioned material that's sitting on top of this boundless nature that we are, this nature that has all the wisdom an understanding we might ever want to have. Unfortunately, you know, most of us are identified with this accumulation of experience and all the associations and beliefs and concepts we've developed over the lifetimes. So, um, what I wanted to move into next, and that's why some, um, we said that you could bring your yoga mat, but we're going to explore movement just for about 10 or 15 minutes. And this is a meditation in movement because it helps to uh, deconstruct a little bit this uh, uh, structure that we are completely identified with. And so you can do it sitting, you can do it standing, or you could do it laying down. <coughs> as many of you as you want to lay down, I would recommend because when we're that relaxed, then uh, <coughs> things can be elicited that are harder to do when we're standing. I'm going to go ahead and stand. And now, so just find a, a spot wherever you want to be. And then I'll help you do this. Would this be a time to grab our mats? Yeah, if you want to lay down, you can just sit next to a mat. I think yeah. a black bag. Either a mask or a blanket and mm-hmm. something that will give you a little cushion from the wooden floor. 
moving in that way um, can really help your health. I also welcome that invitation of, um, and freedom of expression. And now sitting here feels so content, and I can feel the integration of those movements, and it's a positive mm-hmm. feeling. Because you have a little bit of sense of more freedom? Yeah, warmth mm-hmm. and comfort. Yeah. Thank you. We don't, we don't realize how, how much grief we carry from uh, having so much conditioning imposed on this life force that is, has, you know, such inherent freedom and we like, put all these constraints on it. So this is like a little window mm-hmm. into a possibility. Yeah. Did anybody find it difficult or hard to move or? I found it (coughs) somewhat difficult because of my conditioning. I'm so conditioned when I'm lying there to to not move and to not want to move and to to notice the urge to move. uh, So that I was just really, you know, balancing (coughs) the stillness of of the outer body and the sort of uh, intense movement that was going on inside the body, you know. the, um, the respiration, the, the heartbeat, the digestion, mm-hmm. all the things the body does inside. But you were having a little bit of. I'm just wondering, was there a little bit of a feeling of conflict, or I'm not quite clear, or if you were just you were just observing? I, I think I was just observing, but I, I'm just I'm just not used to moving the body when I'm when we're gonna lay down. I'm thinking of shavasana or uh, body scans or whatever. So yeah. I'm used to like laying there and focusing my awareness as opposed to actually following through with the movements. Yeah. So so here, you know, we have especially you know with the spiritual practice and there's all kinds of conditioning that happens there too. So. Um, we also, I mean, if we start investigating <coughs> the the uh, ideas that are associated with that uh, about you know preferring stillness and this is you know to observe and so on, so it, you know it's just as valuable to run into that as you know have it all open up easily because we're we're interested in seeing how we are conditioned and where freedom lies, mm-hmm. and so just with the awareness itself. You see this, and then it opens choices, or it opens doors. There's no right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Just the, the fact that, you know, oh, this is the conditioning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the um, I'll tell you a story, because it was so moving to me. I have a granddaughter and a grandson. But when she was about six, you know, I, I had picked her up from school, and um, it was during a period I was feeling really low about the environment and so on, and I was kind of depressed. And I pick her up, and she always wanted to go get these Barbies at Walgreens. I said, "No, we're not going to do that. We're going to go to the beach." <laughs> so um, we went to the beach, <coughs> and when we arrived there, the tide was so low that there was so much that was exposed in the ocean floor. And she got there, and when she saw this, it was really almost like watching a deer. She got so excited, 
And she saw all of this, and in her excitement, she started doing cartwheels mm. along the shore. And she did cartwheels, and then she'd take a few breaths and then some more. <laughs> and she did it almost the whole length of the small beach. And I saw that, and I thought, life wants to live. Yeah. And so when you say this and you watch, you know, there's all this metabolic process going on in the body, and there's this impulse to move, to dance, to like meet life in that movement. And we have a lot of cultural um, injunctions against that that keep us not moving. So um, I just wanted to tell you that story because watching her, I thought, I better get off my... <laughs> I want to serve that. I want to serve, Life wants to live. I want to serve that. Mm-hmm. And so movement is an inherent part of life. Anybody else? Just say that I'm mm-hmm. um, just suffering and yeah, I have done this before the continuum. I just and then I can notice places like oh well should I should I move my pelvis or not so I can feel some conditioning with that but but I was like feeling the life and so I could see where it was coming up against but then wanting to just follow and it was just so I felt like so alive you know so just following that life I felt mm-hmm. more awake and fluid yeah. yeah thank you yeah we're, we're sort of coming back mm-hmm. <laughs> coming back home. So, is there anybody else? This is something I've done a lot in my practice because I found it necessary for various unwinding. And um, I thought it was great. And the only challenge I had was a little bit of comparing mine and everybody was so still. And I was you know, kind of <laughs> standing up and doing more. Like, oh, uh, maybe I'm not in the same spirit. So there was definitely a sense, even in this room, of there being a culture of... Oh, I, I want to be like everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's layers and layers and layers yeah. of our conditioning. And my osteopathic teacher, uh, he's a very evolved being, and he would say to me, turn the page. And so every time you get an idea, turn the page and see what what's next, you know. And if we keep turning the page, eventually you get to this totally non-conceptual place, you know, and then there's just one. And so, you know, if we notice, just keep turning the pages and see what, what, what's next. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay. So, um, since we, we were tuning into the bodies, I wanted to say a little bit about the historical development of our relationship to the body and in, in, by extension to nature and to the feminine uh, itself. And I'm talking about the feminine I'm not talking about female. I'm talking about um, energetically, I mean, now human language has very clear limitations, but the masculine and feminine energies in their primal expression as we use them have certain characteristics. And we are living at a time where the the feminine aspect is not in balance with the the masculine. There's a lot more um, expression of the masculine at this time, and it's been like that for a few thousand years. Um, so, maybe 7,000 years ago, um, when we were primarily hunter-gatherers, um, we were aware of the entire body, the, uh, if you will, the sense of identity was very 
pole, uh, particularly the legs and the belly and the connection to the ground and the earth was very strong. And as you will see, you know, some of the indigenous people, particularly the bush people, they were able to walk through the landscape aware of 360 what was going on. And one of the tools they used was listening to the birds, because the birds are up in the trees and they're kind of surveying the landscape. And <coughs> in their sounds and songs and chirps and calls and alarms, they're basically describing who's around and what, what's happening. So bush people actually understood the language of the birds, and they knew as they walked through the landscape where what animals were, if there was something threatening or not. They literally had this like 360-degree sense of their environment. Over time, um, you know, we began uh, agriculture came into existence, and we began owning land and owning animals, and this whole other way of relating began to emerge. And so our relationship also with the body as it went over time went first from you know the legs and the lower belly into the diaphragm at the time of Homer. There was actually some talk about the diaphragm. And as time went on and Plato came along, then we began to be identified primarily with the head. And at that time it was thought that the head was the seat of divinity. And then little by little it's like the body became suspect. And as the body became suspect, our whole relationship with the natural world became suspect. And things kind of culminated uh, in, uh, in Western culture with the beginning of what we now call modern science. And Francis Bacon, who's thought to be you know, the father of modern science, uh, had used some of the language from the witch trials of the Middle Ages to describe how the scientists should be relating to the natural world. And he said that we should torture the secrets out of her. Mm. And so that kind of attitude of exploitation, domination, um, it, it exists within the narrative that informs our current culture. And so that uh, humble uh, 360 degree, incredibly receptive quality. That's really one of the qualities of the of the feminine uh, energy, if you will. Really went underground, and in fact, we persecuted it for quite a long time. So I'm just mentioning this because we are living part of our woundedness now. Is this legacy of disconnection, disconnection from our body, disconnection from the natural world. And then that brings in a whole uh, way of <coughs> being in the world. So I just wanted to mention that, and then I'll, I'll go into other aspects of how, uh, you know, how our narrative has developed over time. But I want to go back to how it is when we are born. When we are born, we're basically, unless there's been terrific trauma in intrauterine or around the, the birth itself, we are born in a state of uh, utter wholeness. I mean, the, a baby, and you see why we love to be with babies, because babies exhibit the qualities of awakened mind. They just don't have a conceptual framework within which to express that. <coughs> 
But from the Dzogchen tradition, you know, the way of abiding, once awakened mind is known. There are four ways this manifests. One is ineffability. And it's ineffable because it is beyond the world of concepts. And so you get, you have, we're born in that state. We're born in an ineffable state of actual knowing, but it's not the knowing of the discursive mind. The other aspect of that is that we are born in openness. A baby is completely open to experience whatever is happening. So the aspect of openness. The, other, the third aspect is the aspect of spontaneous presence. Mm-hmm. The baby is not calculating, trying to figure out how it's going to be. I mean, it, the baby is just being. It's like my granddaughter doing the cartwheels at the beach. Just spontaneous presence. The, the outflow of that life <coughs> expressing itself in its utter purity. Um, and the last is oneness. The baby doesn't know itself separate from anything else. I mean, it, it, the baby is in this undivided state of being. And some of what we begin to experience, sometimes even right at, uh, at the time we're born, is depending on how we are being received. <coughs> as we're coming into this plane of existence, there can be sort of shock because we are in, in triuterine, we are in this undivided place. And sometimes how we are met, if we are met in the tempo that we're coming in, there is no separation. But most of us are not born into enlightenment settings, so the frequency in which people are vibrating and where they're at, it's very jarring as we first come out. And so we begin, our souls begin to have impressions, physical impressions, and unlike many other animals that can kind of, they're born and they can get up and start moving, we are born, you know, (laughs) utterly helpless physically in terms of providing for ourselves. So we are completely dependent on our caretakers for our survival and for all all of our needs, the food, the emotion, the physical comfort. So we begin to have, even though we're in this amazing state of being, which in itself is pleasurable and fulfilling, just the state itself, just like awakened mind is as we move through our spiritual development, there's a sense of pleasure in just the beingness itself. The baby is in that state, but of course, you know, the, the body has all kinds of needs, and we begin to experience the needs not being met, or people are not attuned, and so we start to have all these kinds of unpleasant experiences, and we begin to, you know, the, the brain is developing, we begin to develop concepts about, you know, when what happens, you know, we begin to make associations. And you can see how the whole conceptual framework starts to develop. Now, our ego structure, which is a functional structure, which is just in our mind, is a bunch of past experiences with a conceptual framework that starts to try and make sense out of it. And a lot of times, you know, it is so painful to be living in a non-enlightened state, you know, with all of these experiences, that really our ego structure is this scrambling to make this world work for us because we are not able to stay with our true nature and live in that in that way of being. 
So we have this uh, structure that develops in our mind, and because there's so little support for true nature, we start to lose connection to true nature, and instead we get identified with all these impressions, these images that land, then we start to think that's us. And we identify with all these self-images, you know, I'm the one that can't do this, or I'm the one that can do that, or, you know. And so there's this, it is, but it is something, um, you know, as we start to see that clearly, you know, we have a certain amount of tenderness and compassion because it is like we're scrambling to build something that will be close to what we lost, but it's, it's only an imitation. And because this is just an imitation of true nature, what we're building as an ego structure, um, there's a certain insecurity, because we're identified with something that's just a collection of past experience. It's not reality itself. It's not what we actually are. So because of that, that ego structure is very insecure and is very reactive. And so the way our ego works is... We are very happy if we meet others that think like we do, look like we do, do things like we do, have ideas about the world like we do. We feel very comfortable. And when we meet somebody who looks different, acts different, laughs too loud, does this way, we don't like that. And the ego is so quick. I mean, within three seconds, sometimes, we can feel this is unpleasant, I don't like it, write them off. And we can do that in milliseconds. We can write each other up. And the door is closed. So just like we have these internal structures that we are identified with, our society, the so- we live embedded in social structures. And those social structures are an extension of the preferences of our ego structure. And you can say, well, they're conventions and they allow us to have, you know, streets and people follow traffic lights and so on. I mean, you know, we have a very complex system of being able to live, you know, in big populations and somehow not running to each other. Um, but we, it's very important to, re- to <coughs> understand that social structures are an extension of ego structure, even though they're a functional structure. And then not everyone has access to the design of those structures. Our social structures reflect the preferences of those who have access to power and privilege. And so the preferences of some are imposed on others. People who don't have access to power do not are not involved in the in the design of social structures. And so we can see that because of the way we are organized over time, oppression is inherent in social structures, unless there's an incredible degree of <laughs> enlightenment and, and understanding. So, can you say that again? oppression is inherent in social structures as we know them, because social structures are an extension of the ego structure, and not everyone has access to the design of the structure. So the preferences of some are imposed on others. 
And so, if we understand like the narrative that's ruling us, if we are in a position of privilege, for example, we have to understand that this narrative that we've been handed down rules <laughs> our perception and understand the limitations of that. We think we see, you know, we, we understand how things are, but we, we really don't. And so, when we uh, approach the area of diversity work, it's so important to understand the limitations of our perspective and our view. We only have a slice of reality. And um, it's very humbling, and that in itself frees us to be curious about what is it like for somebody else, or what is it like for another being. I have, I've inherited this fish from my granddaughter. They, my family just moved recently. They couldn't take the fish. I didn't want to be responsible for another life. But I have this fish. And now it's sitting on the dining table. And I need to learn what is fish mind. Mm-hmm. You know? And I practice at the dining table and I touch the bowl, you know, wishing this being to know its nature. And it's like, I want to learn about fish mind. Mm-hmm. But so, um, and this is very helpful. Uh, some friendships I have from the Native American <coughs> tradition, you know, where, where, where um, in the Native view, some, you know, uh, everything is our relative. And in some deep uh, cultures, it's not only the animate, but also the inanimate. You know, this room, how this room responds to our practice. Mm-hmm is, is uh, reflecting something back to us and it goes back and forth so that awakening, uh, the awakening of the whole is potentiated by the interaction of uh, a human being meditating and the way uh, both the animate and inanimate world interact with us. And Dogen has written beautiful about that, beautifully about that. I'm sorry I didn't bring that I might mention it later on. Um, so, going back to this insecure ego structure and then our social structures, how they develop, um, in order to sustain the power, you know, uh, in the positions of privilege, but maybe, maybe before I go there, I want to tell you something about uh, the Bush people, because Lawrence Vanderpost who's a South African writer who passed away by now, but he was a big advocate of the rights of Bush people, and he uh, mentioned in one of his books, The Heart of the Hunter, that he never in his life had met human beings that were so uniquely themselves. Each person was so unique, and at the same time that they were so connected to the whole. The whole, the, the land, the sky, the stars, everything. And so, he was sort of wondering how, how that was possible. And so he realized that Bush people did not aggregate in bands that were more than like 12 at a time. He said the biggest group he ever knew of that were together for a while were about 30 people. And so he surmised that as we aggregated into larger groups, tribes and so on, that the sheer number of, of, of people like that began to develop norms that were then oppressive to the individual. And as the individual had to conform to these norms, we start we started to lose our connection with ourselves and then by extension with the whole. 
So they coined the term the tyranny of numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to give you all of this background because part of what we are dealing with is <coughs> generic in the way we have organized ourselves to live. Um, so with that sort of background, at least, you know, thinking about where we find ourselves in this country, the narrative that we're living in, the narrative that we're embedded in, has two big uh, influences. One is the uh, impact of colonialism. Most of us in this room are of European descent. But, you know, as the colonizers came, you know, there were all kinds of people here that, you know, there was a tremendous genocide in this country. And so the attitude of the colonial mind that can look at another human being and not see them as a human being, but they are expendable so that we can move forward with our plans. You know, that kind of attitude is still present in our narrative. And then we also have the influence of slavery and taking all these human beings from another continent, putting them in ships like sardines, bringing them over and owning them and selling and buying and treating them, you know, sometimes even worse than some animals. So, you know, and then by extension, how, what, how that has labeled that whole part of humanity that is dark skin and our relationship to them. So these two, two uh, huge pieces of influence in the narrative, in the American narrative that we are sitting with, are still present in our, in our souls. <coughs> so in order to sustain that supremacy, that privilege, they're all, they're, or what are called in sociology the cleavage lines. And the cleavage lines are along the uh, lines of class, uh, along uh, the lines of gender. There's still tremendous prejudice against women and the females of the species. Uh, along the lines of sexual orientation, there, were, there is homosexuality in all the cultures everywhere, in indigenous cultures. In, in the American indigenous uh, uh, view, they're called two-spirit, and, and they're considered actually like special beings. Um, but, you know, the cleavage lines along uh, sexual orientation around physical ability. You know, there were times when, you know, like people with physical uh, uh, disabilities, you know, were, were shunned, and it's like nobody wanted to see them. And, divorce ourselves from that imperfection, if you will. So these cleavage lines, you know, are very much operating to this day. And there was an amazing letter written by a young man uh, in San Francisco um, who was upset about the homeless people and the kind of unsavory things he had to see. And he wrote the mayor of San Francisco and the police chief upset that, you know, he was having dinner with his parents from Santa Barbara. Tadish Grill is like one of the oldest <laughs> restaurants in San Francisco. He walks out of Tadish Grill. My, this young man has been in San Francisco for three or four years. And he's telling the mayor that this place is going, going to become a shanty town because all these homeless people uh, are there. And he's so upset and he basically uh, advocating <coughs> for cleaning up the city of all these homeless people. That is, you know, a very thorough identification 
that wants to obliterate that which is unpleasant. He even, he even said, I don't want to have to see the despair you know, on my way to work every day. So that, and, and that attitude is actually a bit more, more uh, prevalent now in the Bay Area than it used to be because of the capacity some of these people have had to make <coughs> tremendous amounts of money overnight like that. And the sense of entitlement that comes from that, and the utter disconnection from our ground of what we actually are. I worked for 11 years <coughs> as a physician for homeless people in San Francisco at a time when HIV was just beginning and the wave of homeless people, we had defunded all of mental health uh, services and all these people were on the street. I saw retired nurses, even <coughs> physicians who had had you know, a breakdown and ended up on the street. All kinds of people I saw in these shelters. And so, you know, who is falling off the edge of our society these days? I mean, I, I often thought, God, for it could be me, you know. So, um, but I wanted to mention this letter, and there's been all kinds of, you know, reactions to that. But this is like part of what's in our narrative of how things should be. Um, <coughs> and like you, like you can see, I mean, I don't know what impact, for example, that letter will have because a lot of people will agree with that and will think that we should uh, sanitize the city of all these unsavory people. And where are they going to go? We don't have our, our uh, social system. It's, it's less and less organized to take care of the most vulnerable people. So um, this, this um, points to what I say is the momentum to keep the status quo. is the momentum of our ego to continue to protect its own fortress. And unless the dominant class sees it, becomes aware, and commits to the change, we cannot make it happen. And I am part, you know, I've been, I've worked with a lot of people, and there's all kinds of things that have changed, you know, the status of women, and, you know, some of the uh, freedom, little bit of freedom that we're seeing for the LGBT community. Um, but racism actually is on the rise. Mm-hmm. And as the percentage of the population uh, grows of people of color, there's almost like a backlash going on. And so what we are seeing, uh, the killings by the police that we are now aware of, the actual numbers actually have gone down. It's just that we are now aware of it because of the social media. But for example, even though we're primarily seeing uh, the killing of African Americans, the percentage of the population of Native American men and women that are killed by law enforcement is higher mm-hmm. in terms of the percentage of the population than it is within the African American community. And uh, the Native population just doesn't have the same access to the media. And by now we understand, you know, our media these huge conglomerates now, it's very hard to get real news. You have to really know where to look for it. So that the the way that the status quo maintains itself is more powerful now because the media 
is very skewed and very controlled what we actually uh, can find out so I can't uh, stress enough that those of us that live with ease of movement freedom to go wherever we want uh, power to actually have some input and, and the spiritual practice that opens the view beyond just the identity of the ego. There, you know, we are in the perfect position to address this. <clears throat> and you need sort of a critical number of people to commit and things shift because we are this whole thing that we are part of is a single fear of awareness. And so the work that we do as one individual you know, quicken something in the whole. And I can't even imagine, like, how many of us does it take? But all of our efforts matter, all of them. Even if you're sitting alone at home doing a meditation, you're well-wishing, you're, the way you direct your attention has an impact. And that being said, we also need to take action as, you know, whenever we can and in, a, in an appropriate way that we can and now, you know, we're here together now thinking about this community and like how do we make uh, Santa Cruz Insight, you know, uh, how, we, how do we organize ourselves so that we can be uh, a more welcoming environment for people who may not look like us. So, you know, that's the, the impetus for our being together today. Um, but this, this, this pain of the cleavage line cuts through all of our hearts because we are one, we are one, even though we think we're separate. We are one sphere of awareness. And there's no individual salvation. It's just that way. Uh, so when I wanted to go back to the Buddha, <laughs> what, you know, the Buddha as a young man was living in the lap of luxury. And so what made this awakening possible was stepping out of it. And so throughout his life, he defied social convention. If he would stay within the conventions, it's hard to be awakened, awake, to completely awaken if you stay within those structures. It's very hard. <coughs> so um, besides, you know, moving from the com- comfortable life of this Household, then, you know, as he stepped out, then he began to see, you know, the unsavory things on the street. You know, he saw uh, what I call the heavenly messengers, you know, he saw illness, he saw sick people, old people, dead people. And then, you know, the awakened sadness that pointed to a possibility. So um, it's, it's that the very fabric of our life with this ecstasy and with this horror is the fabric of awakening. And he also said, you know, if you have all this ease and never are challenged, there's no way to wake up. If you are so overwhelmed with suffering, you just can't wake up either. It's just too much. But we need just the right mix of ease and difficulty so that awakening is, you know, is brought about. So, um, he also, uh, you know, he defied, moved away from the ascetics, uh, 
It's, it, so each step of the way, it's just, you could see him stepping over the social convention. And, uh, you know, the, the misogyny that existed in the time, he taught women and accepted food from women. And so, um, <coughs> over and over, you know, in his life, we see examples of him stepping beyond the social structures. And I remember uh, in the early days working on diversity within uh, Spirit Rock, and uh, Sakni Rinpoche was visiting, and at the time we were looking at, you know, the the, uh, the oppression of women within the Buddhist community, and I was asking him, so Rinpoche, you know, in the Dzogchen tradition, I mean, it's so clear that there's just no no difference between men and women. I mean, this mind, it's all one thing. He says, yes, but all the teachings are coming through a cultural context. And the teachings are pristine. And if you start experiencing that, you can't even imagine how do you oppress anything, anybody. He says, but people get confused between the teaching and the cultural context. The oppression is in the cultural context in which the teachings are presented. And so we need to begin to tease apart what is the true teaching and what is the cultural wrapping around it and be able to remove that and know what's really the truth and let that guide us. Uh, I heard one time Adyashanti saying as we move through our our spiritual development you cannot leave a stone unturned. And so for me um, understanding that as we face the work in the outer life it's like we're penetrating the fabric of our lives we begin to experience a a level of congruency where the way we're living is an expression of whatever realization starts to happen that it starts to really be all of one piece and everything is expressing that awakening the way you relate, the way you work, everything. How you meet, how you look, how you take care of an insect so that you don't have to kill it, you can put it outside, or or, if, or even if you wind up killing something, that there's some sense of, you know, uh, recognition, and you know, it's just, it starts informing your life in a whole powerful way. So, um, there's a certain impeccability that starts developing, and <coughs> impeccability is an expression of clarity. As we start to see more clearly, we are more capable of being impeccable. And on the other time, on the other side of that is humility. You know, that we will make mistakes left and right all over the place. And to recognize that that is just a human condition. We're living within a conditioned life. And within that conditioning, you know, we are going to make all kinds of mistakes because the conditioning is so, so limited of you. Um, so to to have the humility and little by little as the true nature really gives us the strength to deal with whatever is arising. I mean, um, after a while, when you begin to really have the glimpses of that, it has its own <coughs> life. It has its own momentum. It it it, uh, it brings up all that needs to be seen, and some of it is not comfortable because 
that everything we've ignored or whatever, the more awareness really starts shining through, the more stuff you have to deal with. And so it, it, it's, it's, it's like a wheel, a <laughs> grist that starts bringing up all that needs to be known. Um, but as we see that, it's like the compassion that arises to help us meet what we are seeing. And so, little by little, we can become less and less defended. So it's like putting down this burden of having to defend our positions. And as we do that, you can always feel yourself coming back to this incredible innocence. And it's not the naive innocence of a child, it's the innocence of the purity of what we are. And that is only possible when we quit defending ourselves. Because when we are busy defending ourselves, we are situated in an ego structure with all of its associated um, obstacles you know, to actually seeing. And so, you know, moving on to the area of service, I mean, we're all here in this room, we're all engaged in service in one way or another. And when we're in a position of serving, depending on, you know, what the society grants us, you know, if you're a teacher, if you're a physician, if you're a counselor, um, people come to you sometimes in, in an incredibly vulnerable state. And whatever you say, the look, how you meet them, has huge impact. And your misattunement can sometimes send somebody reeling and with trouble integrating what happened. So I remember as an intern at San Francisco General thinking, oh my God, you know, like I have to be so careful because any, and you get so tired and you say things off the cuff, any word can be so devastating. And I was really humbled by just that recognition alone. So, you know, in our spiritual communities, and I remember when I was teaching, we, retreats and thinking, oh my God, the vulnerability of people as they come with their spiritual needs was even greater than when they come with their physical needs. And I thought, I can't really handle this. I can be a physician and take care of the body and all that. But, you know, so anyway, I'm developing a little more capacity now. But I was really amazed at just the, the magnitude of the task of attending to someone spiritually. And so, um, I just want to say that because then how we, we need to be committed to our own work and to seeing through our blind spots and the ways in which our conditioning creates suffering for other people. That's, that has to be an ongoing uh, part of our work when we are teaching uh, meditation. So, and there's plenty of resistance within our communities to facing social oppression, to facing injustice. All kinds of beliefs about how, yeah, but you know, that belongs out there. We're, we're here uh, uh, working on the Buddhist te- teachings and, you know, that's for social workers or political people to deal with. That, you know, that doesn't belong here. Mm-hmm. I've had people say, this is more politics than Dharma and we're here <coughs> to, to, um, only, you know, look at the Dharma. The Dharma is everything. Mm. 
the Dharma, you know, in a very superficial way, are the teachings. The real, the living Dharma is the unobstructed, inexpressible way that reality manifests itself. And there are laws inherent in that manifestation. And the recognition of that is like we're seeing the Dharma. But it's everything. So, the suffering of the world is smack in the middle of our, <laughs> of our mandate <laughs> as, as spiritual teacher. It was right in the middle. And I, you know, as a decision, I used to think, you know, look at why, how we suffer, why we suffer, and as a Buddhist as well. And I thought, how we treat each other, human beings, and how we treat, treat other beings and the earth is the most, um, it's the biggest source of suffering. It's how we interact with each other and with our world. And there are many of us and more coming. And we can see how our, our unenlightened, conditioned life uh, has met this world and where we find ourselves right now. So there's really nothing more important for human beings than to wake up. And... Um, in the Tibetan tradition, we often talk about the precious human life. And not every human life is a precious human life. You know, the precious human life has certain ingredients. You know, we have the health to practice. We have the ease and time to practice. The teachings are available at the same time. And the teachers that we need come. When you get all that together, it is a precious human life. And the times that, that those set of conditions line themselves up just right is extremely rare. And you can look, you know, think about the entire world and our humanity. How many people have those conditions? Very few. And when that those conditions present themselves in your life, don't waste them. <laughs> Because it's not only for you, the world needs us who have a precious human life to actually actualize it and, and uh, unfold it. And I'll tell you that the, uh, the, I'm not going to be able to remember it exactly, but I want to tell you this quote, Dogen. Dogen is you know, an amazing human being living at a second, during a century where these amazing human beings were living then in the uh, 12th, 13th century, you know. There was Longchenpa, who was the omniscient one in Tibetan Buddhism, Rumi, Atar, um, uh, uh, Dogen, and, and I mean, just think, this incredible hundred years. But anyway, Dogen describes in a passage from his Bendawa, which is it's a book called uh, The Wholehearted Way. He's saying, there is a way in which the incomparable awareness of all things returns to the person in Zazen. And whereby that person and the myriad things intimately and imperceptibly assist each other. And I, I, I'll make some mistakes, but you'll get the, the general gist of it. it says, Fences and walls, grasses and trees demonstrate and, up, up, uh, demonstrate and up, uphold it for the sake of human beings both ordinary and sage. And in turn, human beings, both 
ordinary and sage uh, demonstrate and unfold it for the sake of fences and walls, grasses and trees. But these, uh, something about these, this intimate relationship do not mix into the mind of the person sitting because they're happening within stillness without any fabrication, ineffability. They're happening within stillness without any fabrication and they are enlightenment itself. And so in the footnotes to that, it's explaining that in Western philosophy, you know, we, we think of all these sort of inanimate objects like they're not participating. But that the but that everything in the manifested world is participating in this process of enlightenment. And so that there is there's something special about this human life with this mind that re, that reflects on itself, recognizes its own nature. There's something almost kinetic about it that then has the capacity to be interacting with everything around it and going back and forth so, so that it potentiates the expression of the whole. Many lamas, great enlightened lamas, spent, like one of my teachers was 88, he just spent three months doing unbelievable practices for the state of the world. He almost wiped himself out doing so much practice to try and shift what's happening, you know. So, um, I just want to give you a, a context because, again, all that we do matters. So, um, so then going back to our spiritual community, you know, there's uh, uh, some of the barriers that we encounter is this preference for transcendence. And I certainly, when I started to have an experience of emptiness, it's like, oh, I just want to hang out there, you know, all thinking, well, oh, great, you know, it's so pleasant. And uh, eventually I realized that, you know, reality expresses itself in what they call the effulgence. You know, everything, even though we, we see these things as solid, everything is dissolving and coming back into existence. So that there's this uh, dissolution, expansion, and then coming forth into manifestation. Everything is pulsing that way. And uh, I want to give you this, uh, because you will understand when we talk about the feminine and masculine energies uh, and why we call the great mother that state of knowing, sublime knowing that understands the whole it's because in the expansion is sort of the, the feminine that is all inclusive and then to make manifestation possible that energy needs to be gathered and become vectorial and directional so that density con can condense into form. So the masculine, everything that's manifesting is a play of the feminine and the masculine energies interacting. So there needs to be a balance between those two forces. And um, in our human consciousness, there's an imbalance. And I believe, this is my personal belief, that the reason there's such an imbalance is because so few of us know the Great Mother. And the Great Mother is the big, expansive, spacious quality of our mind that is the ultimate uh, sublime knowing. 
that then informs how to be in this manifested world. If more human beings were having that experience, this world would be very different from what it is.
But these people in the ER would make fun of uh, women that were, you know, going, I, I, oh, there's another one with an eye attack. Uh, mm-hmm. There was another expression that um, when we were looking at uh, whether somebody with abdominal pain could have a gallbladder stone, they say, yeah, it's the three F's. And the three F's were fat, female, and foreign. Mm-hmm. And this was like one of the one of the things that we were mm-hmm. taught, you know. <laughs> and I was, uh, I was taught fair, fat, and and female. Oh, in nursing school, in nursing fair, fat. Well, you see, this foreign was because there were many Latin American women. You know, it's more prevalent in the Hispanic community uh, to have gallbladder disease, and so you know there are certain groups that are like. Uh, the uh, Native Americans are also very high, but but just to tell you know it's just and, and and who is it that says that? That's an ego that's sh- trying to show its its way, its its position in society, and and make sure that you know we have it all figured out and we can make these statements such that tell you know that make us feel like we know so much and we're so good and better and. You know, it, it, but if you start to see the, the what's the word the fragility of that kind of mind but I just want to tell you because these things happen I mean I, I at Spirit Rock I remember this African American woman coming in and you know somebody asked her oh you know like almost like what are you doing here I thought you guys were all Baptists mm. <laughs> can you imagine you know what it takes for a black woman to walk into a place like that I remember one, one day doing a day long for people of color there, and this man, also African, said, oh my God, to come in here in the bastion of white supremacy, he says to me, and to actually feel welcome. And it's like a healing for him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these statements are made. Uh, there was just a, a program recently, and there was a woman from Puerto Rico, and um, one of the other participants asked her, well, do you have your documents? Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, you know, I'm a, I'm a citizen, uh, you know, uh, Puerto Rico is part of the U.S. Oh, I think you should still carry your, your document. These are the kinds of things that people say and do in a totally mindful, mindless way. And, you know, layers and layers of suffering, you know, for people, about some of my African-American friends, it's like, I, I've been with them when this has happened. They walk out the door and immediately there's all kinds of stuff to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. I, I went with a friend, you know, after teaching the first people of color retreat at Spirit Rock, and we went to Stinson Beach into a restaurant. And the waitress, and here it's very dark from back east, she was so uh, rude. I mean, it was like, I, I've been there many times. I was just appalled mm-hmm. at her treatment because of his appearance. So I just want to mention those things. And then on the other hand, I worked at the refugee clinic at San Francisco General when the Cambodian Holocaust was, you know, people were coming in and just unbelievable amounts of suffering. And among the refugees were Hmong and Yen people that were from the hill tribes, you know. And there we had this amazing director of the refugee clinic, Paul Delay. And we developed a, um, a manual of beliefs within the Hmong and Yen uh, tribes, so that we would even, because we couldn't be further from each other, I mean, in terms of cultures, um, so that we would know how to interact with them. Mm-hmm. And so, 
something as simple, I remember, this sticks in my mind because it was something I would do so mindlessly, it's like, please sit down, you know, pointing to a chair. Well, if you do that, it's insulting to a mom and man because you don't point to people, you point to animals, you don't. So, I mean, even something as simple as that, but what I was so impressed with was the care and the time people took to actually learn these things and document them so that when the medical students would come, they would read this manual and would start to act more appropriately. And you can imagine, I mean, some of these people had seen their whole family blown away. They were so traumatized. And the last thing they needed was, out of our own ignorance, to have some kind of interaction that further diminished their sense of of, uh, their dignity as a human being. So... um, these are the things that were possible within the homeless uh, clinic that I that I worked at. We taught uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, both in Spanish and, and in English. And in the Spanish uh, group, some of what we had to do was, well, there's never mentioning of Buddhism in that. You know, you just it's within a medical setting, mindfulness is a very useful word that opens all kinds of doors. But we couldn't even use the word yoga because some of the people would be, you know, put off by that, and uh, depending on their belief. And so we would talk about, you know, meditation and exercises. And so if you're going to teach, for example, the Latin American community, you might want to use uh, a, a kind of mindfulness-based stress reduction format and even do away with the yoga and just use... So, you know, whatever is like skillful means, in order to meet certain populations, you have to meet them where they are. And the Buddhist teachings, you know, it's not about becoming a Buddhist, it's about the way of awakening. Whatever language is needed, you can do the teachings in whatever language is needed, and it still will bring people to their own recognition of that nature, and they can still be Catholics or Muslims or whatever, you know. Uh, True nature Then another um, encouraging thing I wanted to mention. I'm part of a women's writing group, and in that group are women that are coming across these amazing lines. Uh, One of the women who now moved uh, back east was the daughter within the family. They were the probably the biggest slave-owning family from Rhode Island. Mm And she was in the group, and then we had another African-American woman, descendant of slaves, who's doing all her research around um, uh, domestic workers. We had somebody leading, who's a teacher at MIT in writing, and leading the group, and her family was one of the early families in Napa that ousted the Native people from there. And we have several Native women in the group. So we are working, you know, across these cleavage lines, mm. and also very painful uh, kind of perpetrator, victim kind of line, and uh, what, what is possible is quite profound. It made me think about Desmond Tutu and in South Africa, you know, the truth and reconciliation mm. uh, things, but I, I, it's just like what, what our hearts are capable of is truly amazing. So I just wanted to um, maybe stop there and we'll, we'll take a break and then we'll do uh, an exercise when we come back thinking how much time we have it's 12.15 uh, 
Yeah, I think we have enough, like 15 minutes, and then we'll have an hour left, I think, after that. I think you just brought it back. If, if you're interested in looking at the whole area of race, this book was published by John Powell, who is the head of an institute in Berkeley that's been around now for like three years, maybe, the Haas Institute for a More Inclusive Society. And it's a tour de force around race. And he's very spiritual and talks about spirituality and, and, and uh, political work and so on. It's very academic. It's a brilliant piece of work. So if some of you are interested, I just wanted to show you that it exists. It's called Racing to Justice by John, John A. Powell. So, um, as I mentioned before the break, <coughs> we, we have these cleavage lines in all these different areas, but we're going to move into uh, exploring our relationship to race. And so, what we're going to do... Oh, 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 oh I forgot about this. <coughs> oh, you know, and if you wouldn't mind in the back, is that switch? Thank you. Sorry. Um, I guess because we're, we're recording this, I probably should recap a little bit. Um, although the cleavage lines uh, include all the different areas that I mentioned before, uh, along class and gender, sexual orientation, physical ability, and someone just reminded me, age in this country is a big deal and race, that for this portion of our time together, I wanted to explore the privilege line of race. And uh, to do that, um, I wanted to invite you, we're going to use a system of inquiry from uh, the Ridwan School Diamond Heart that I've been involved with. And it's, a, it's just using one question, uh, a repeating question. And we're going to have two questions. And in order to do that, we're going to use a format where um, five people together, so if you can get yourself into groups of five, and then I'll, I'll give you instructions. You can, I know you're still eating, but you can bring it to your group and finish your food as you're, as you're there. Make yourself, make sure you're comfortable. Become aware of the seat, your sit bones. <coughs> and feel how the earth is supporting you. And as we approach this work, um, it's, it's helpful if we kind of recognize or can enter into what I would say is... Uh, like ceremony or sacred time, uh, the uh, the way that we experience this this connection it can be quite painful, and so it's really important that we hold deep respect for ourselves and for the others that are in the group, and it's useful. Um, 
to know that this is a time when we can unpack things that perhaps we have never expressed before and um, there's tremendous value in bringing things into the light that have been previously buried or held um, sort of the unconscious in order for us to do that we need to offer each other utter safety and that safety is ensured by utter confidentiality whatever you express you you can talk about that with your family or whatever but anything that anyone else expresses needs to remain here at this time it's also important that afterwards, when we're finished, that you don't necessarily approach each other, oh, you know, you said so and such and such, and I just wanted to follow up on that. Or, uh, some people are not open to that kind of uh, inquiry because of the tenderness of what they, met, what they have brought up. And this, is, you know, this group is more homogeneous, but <coughs> in mixed groups where the people of color uh, it, this could be very wounding if not handled with that with a level of um, respect and attunement and care. Don't let yourself be catapulted by your, just your curiosity, but be very respectful. And I would say, you know, um, allow things to remain in the integrity of what was shared in the moment. So with all that. Um, we're going to use two questions, um, and the first question is getting at the rationale, the unconscious rationale we have for doing what we do. So we're going to be going around the circle, like I'm just going to say the question once, and, and then maybe I'll repeat it one more time, but basically whoever wants to start answering the question will start, and then the next person counterclockwise, we're going to start counterclockwise, and when that person says whatever they say to that question, then the next person goes, and so on. If the, if it's your turn and you don't want to say anything uh, at the moment, you can remain silent, and you can say, I pass, and then have it uh, keep going. And every time it comes, you know, something else might be elicited. So just be open each time. Totally, as much as you can, open-ended and allowing things to arise. Any questions? Any anything that needs to be addressed? Yes. So we we go around the circle as many times as we have time until you, until you hear the, the bell. Okay. I'll ring the bell, uh, and then we'll move. Uh, then I'll tell you the next question. <coughs> so I'll I'll say the question, and you just basically are answering that question each person over and over and over and over. Keep going, keep going, keep going, and what somebody else says might. Uh, uh, make you remember something else, and it, it has a, a momentum which That's what we call it the cyclonic because it really kind of builds. So, okay, so if you can just tune into your belly, feel your legs, and um, yeah, as we're coming from this deep place in ourselves that wants to know and that wants to meet this. So, the first question is. What's right 
about avoiding the whole subject of race. This is the rationale that we're using. What's right about avoiding the whole subject of race? So, whoever wants to start, just whatever comes to mind, don't judge it, don't think about it, just say it and keep going. And so the question is, tell me a way your love of truth brings you forth into this inquiry. Tell me a way your love of truth brings you forth into this inquiry. back on on that but also I found it interesting at first there was aversion and then mm-hmm. I found it interesting we were going counterclockwise so it seemed it was against a natural rhythm of how mm-hmm. things are to be and the aversion then turned into as I was voicing some things of why it would be right compassion compassion for the blind just came up from my mind but compassion for being blinded or unconscious with these beliefs that were taught upon us and, and just having that deep sense of care of them and the aversion dissipated yeah. thank you you're bringing something up that's very important if you watch children they don't discriminate mm-hmm. you know they are very open to their friends and it doesn't matter 
what their friends look like. And I've seen that with my grandchildren. And it's at a certain age that they begin to make distinction. And so they have to be taught mm-hmm. that. Yeah. We don't arrive that way. Mm-hmm. So that's important to realize. Mm-hmm. And to have compassion for our soul doesn't want to be conditioned that way. Yeah. If it had a choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And around talking about the, the truth, um, I had the, the feeling that sometimes it feels like the truth is, is creating suffering for me, like it's bringing suffering into my life. Mm-hmm. But I think the truth is that the suffering is there. Um, it's just not in my consciousness so much, but it's in my body, it's certainly in the culture. And um, so it's. I guess what I'm trying to say is that that, that fear of pain and suffering is uh, creates, can create a fear of the truth, but the acknowledgement, the seeing it, allows it to sort of express the seeing and be held. You know, maybe, I don't know if it's my own personal suffering or if it's the larger suffering of our society, but just, just feeling and sensing that it needs to be seen and held and expressed. You know, part of, uh, it's like wisdom, really, is, you know, depending on our trajectory of our life, many of us, <coughs> I mean, most of us have trauma in our life, of one kind or another. It just depends on how severe. But um, there's healing that needs to be done in order for us to progress in the spiritual path. And so there's some wisdom sometimes, you know, when you have fear of approaching certain material, because there's usually some kind of healing that needs to happen to give you a platform from which to operate, to look, you know. So, so that, um, you know, there could be resistance, that's just, you know, the ego resistance, but when there's a real fear of the pain, um, you might, you know, it's, it's wise to see what, what um, is that bringing up in us. And I'm glad you're bringing that up because there's a whole uh, process of, of skillfully going through the material. The more awareness arises within us, it gives us the strength to look, but it also brings a lot of stuff up. So uh, it, it may go hand in hand. But I, I, even from my own experience, I know that certain I, I have experienced a certain amount of trauma, and I've had to address that in order to be able to then um, do the work. So, uh, we're, we're still working on it. I'm making that. Let's go this way again. Yes. This isn't answering your question, but I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciated what you've done, and I feel like we've just begun, and I'm really sorry we didn't have a whole day.
people opened and they were able to share for longer and people would give kind mm-hmm. of more nuanced um, and more heartfelt uh, sharings. Yeah. So it was a much more opening question, you know, coming from a different, the answers were coming from a different place. That's <laughs> 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 surprising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One more thought on the process. I, when it first started, um, I was struggling a little bit to what am I going to say? And then as it went on, um, by the time it ended, I didn't want it to end because the, it, it just spiraled deeper and deeper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ideally, that's what this format can do. Mm-hmm. It can go longer. Sometimes I've done it 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, but we're, we're working with the time that we have today. Anybody else? I think for me, the recognition is, you know, the reflecting and listening of how... Um, Race has impacted my life. It, it every from my childhood all the way through. So it's like that. That it's a conversation that I've always been having around race, and and just some of my work that has pushed me in that direction to, to bridge some divides. And um, um, my dad was from the south, and my mother was from California, so I lived you know the tensions of race and spent a lot of time in the south. And um, the pain of race was always in my face. Yeah. So it's like for me, it's like the that's the truth, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that to to deny the need to to go into the truth of what's going on in the United States around race and around the world yeah. is um it's like what you're talking about when you you saw your granddaughter doing the the cartwheels. It's like the the I want the lie. And, and the oppression. Sometimes you have to look at those barriers, like we do in the work, right? You look at the, the barriers, and only when you really see and understand can you get through. And for me, that conversation around race has always been, as I said, in my face, and it's it's it feels like it has to kind of we have to open it up. And for me, the truth of what we need as a community, as we move and want to be more inclusive, what what it, what does our community? What is our community made of? And if we don't have blinders around race, right? Open it up and say, whoever's there, who who are we? In a very broadest, most inclusive way, that's where my heart wants to go. And, and you're lucky because you, you sort of had that trajectory that helped you stay connected to it. But for many people, that's not present. And so one of the things for a community like this to and offer uh, services to a broader range of people is, you know, there needs to be work uh, done within to <coughs> begin to open this up and then, then, then you know, you can be uh, as harmless as we can be to each mm-hmm. other, you know. So there's it's the, the preparation before you actually embark on this is very important. Mm-hmm. And I will be handing, you know, there are some handouts and of resources, of all kinds of different things to pursue. And there are programs that are primarily for European Americans, white people, to begin to do the work. And because the, once you start working in, in mixed groups, uh, it, it's, it's, it's important. But there's some work that the groups, you know, people of color have to do and, and white people have to do almost separately in order to then come together mm-hmm. in, a, in a more skillful way mm-hmm. where there's uh, more true healing that happens. Mm-hmm. So, yes. It feels like what you're just saying, that it's like 
There needs to be more presence on both sides of the equation. Yeah. Both sides need to really come present with who they are you know, to each other. And at the same time, there's something I need to say about that, that um, because of the history that we have had, and the ongoing oppression, there are generations of patterns of injury and reactivity. Mm. And so, for people who have had privilege, you don't have to deal with a lot of that. For people who have been oppressed, it's amazing sometimes when I see people who have accomplished and worked through so much material, because this is, that's all extra. You know, in a privileged uh, group, we have our individual lives and the pain of that, but we don't have the added burden of societal oppression. If you're a person of color, and depending on which one, <laughs> uh, it could be so intense that it's a whole other layer. So part of what people in the privileged position need to be aware of is that it's difficult, but to to be willing to weather some of the... Uh, and to make, to understand the anger and reactivity that might be there, mm-hmm. you know. And it's not like, you, you know, you just, uh, but to understand that that's, that is a lawful thing. It belongs because of what has happened there. Mm-hmm. And to not try and say, well, they're not doing it like I'm doing it. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Because it's a different, you see, when we come to the table, we have different roles and different tasks. And it's very important to recognize that. And so, you know, we work to develop the skills to enter the conversation in as skillful a way as we possibly can. And believe me, every soul wants to make the connection. You know, if you can weather someone's anger, you know, then you might feel your own anger and be able to understand how that can be. Then, you know, there's incredible healing sometimes that happens, profound, profound. So I just want to mention that because you cannot expect to oppress people over <laughs> generations and have them be very pleasant and, and polite. I mean, the ones that do are have done aerobatics with their minds in order to meet you that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know some of the people from the Native American community who the pain is so huge mm-hmm. that they just decided, I mean, in psychology we try to go into our pain and work through it and all that, They've decided the only way to survive was to become like wholly positive. So they don't even go there. I mean, maybe with their friends they might discuss. You know, my grandmother was this woman. But, uh, I'll tell you a story. Uh, at Yosemite, one of the Miwok, Yosemite Miwok women, um, she just retired from the Owani being, you know, the person that teaches about, uh, she's 85, 86. And uh, Julia Parker. And her grandmother's place was level to make room for a camping site mm-hmm. at Yosemite. And then she spent 60-some years at the Awani teaching about Native culture. Mm-hmm. And she's one of those people who, she would treat everybody completely equally, no matter what color, whatever, whoever arrived. And she was totally open, but, you know, through incredible, painful mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. And like she, what she was able to accomplish, most people can't. You know, so I just want to mention that that we need to be prepared to hold the pain and the reactivity around mm-hmm. being oppressed for generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Anything else? Mm-hmm. 
sorry, I wish we didn't have the time uh, constraints. But I think I, I, I want to begin to do a little bit of the closure here, unless there's somebody else who wants to bring something up that needs to be heard. So it's hard work, sacred work. So the words that I remind myself is about humility, openness, and curiosity. Curiosity is very important. Be curious about somebody else's experience that's totally different from yours. It will open incredible doors. It will make your world so much bigger than what it is. Um, Accepting our limitations. to the degree that you can take down the defenses, become more undefended, and feel that innocence of the one that can make mistakes and recognize them. And I wanted to read you this quote from Yosho Ken, who's one of the most amazing teachers within the Tibetan tradition. He died several years ago, a very amazing Dzogchen teacher. And he's describing what we are, profound and tranquil free from complexity, uncompounded luminous clarity beyond the mind of conceptual ideas. This is the depth of the mind of the Buddhas. In this, there's nothing to be removed, nor anything to be added. It is simply the immaculate looking naturally at itself. So, by the merit generated by this time and this practice together, may all beings come to know their true nature and find ultimate freedom. And may our deepest, purest aspirations be fulfilled. And may these teachings of liberation that come from the Buddha long remain in our world. And may the lives of our teachers be long, and may all their aspirations be fulfilled for the benefit of all beings throughout all the realms of existence. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.